my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Mark Moss Show where we're talking about the decentralized revolution. We're talking about where politics, finance, and technology come together. Of course, it's always technology that changes the world, and that technology is Bitcoin, the decentralized revolution. You know, I like to bring to you some interesting guests. You don't have to listen to me talk all the time, and that's what I have today. I'm joined by Vijay Boyapati. He's the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, and now, uh, previously with Google, now a senior engineer with Swan, a a big uh, friend of the show for sure. Anyway, Vijay, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mark. It's so good to see you again. Now, I uh, kind of cut you off before we jumped in here because I was explaining to you um, how my Twitter account got hacked. So about almost three months ago, I got, what happened is I, I guess now that I've looked into it, they got my email address, put it into like some like spam bot thing or whatever. And all of a sudden my email just started getting flooded with emails, like thousands, it subscribed me to like thousands of like newsletters. And so then I figured they're going to try to hide something. And sure enough, there was like a password reset for Twitter. Um, I was able to get in and reset my password, but they set up a 2FA device, a two, two second factor authentication. And uh, I've probably filled out 30 requests from uh, on Twitter. And interesting enough, just before I, I stop, uh, my uh, good friend George Gammon also had the same thing happen to him. And he has an attorney that filed a suit against Twitter because they're still billing us and we can't get access. And they're responding to the suit. They're going back and forth with the attorney, but they just won't reset the stupid 2FA. I mean, it's like the most, like, just like just reset the 2FA. Anyway, uh, so you were going to tell me that uh, something that you've done to protect your privacy. Yeah, it's actually, uh, one thing I've noticed is that I, I've had friends and family who use services where they get billed on sort of regular cadence, 
And then for whatever reason, something happens with that service, they don't like it anymore. Or like in your case, you got hacked. They they continue to get, get charged and they, they don't feel like there's any way they can get out of it because they the service has their uh, credit card information and they just continue to build. And there's no way to stop it. Uh, I, I really like and recommend this service called privacy.com, which allows you to create sort of disposable credit cards on the fly um, and you connect it to your bank account and it's kind of this protective layer between um, you, your bank account and the merchant that you're using. And so you generate a temporary credit card and you, you know, when you sign up for a service like Twitter, you put in your temporary uh, credit card number that they, they give you and you have full control over how that credit card can be used. You can say the maximum amount that can be charged is $10 per month or per year or per transaction. If you ever don't like the service, you can say, I don't want, you can delete the card. You can set the maximum amount that can be charged down to $1, for instance, and this has been, for me, great protection because our fiat world is broken in so many ways uh, that we we need things like this to protect us because once once companies can get our bank account details or our credit card details, they can do huge damage to us. And unfortunately, you're having this this experience with a, a actually well known and well established company. It's they're not it's not a scammer. It's just a well known company that just happens to not be helping you. Uh, and another example of this, my wife signed up for 24-Hour Fitness, and I'm sure many people in America know about this company of course. Um, that do this kind of marketing scam to get you on board. And she just couldn't unsubscribe, and they were charging us like $50 a month. Uh, so that that motivated me to find um, this service, privacy.com. Um, I'm not, not affiliated with them, not an investor or anything like that. It's just one of those services I've had such a great experience with, and Whenever I hear friends and family tell me about the, their experiences where they feel like they're getting scammed or they feel like they're getting charged and they can't stop it, I'm like, why don't you should try this out. Once you try it out, you, you won't ever want to go back because it gives you that level of control where if they have your credit card information, you can really limit the damage they can do to you. Mm, all right. Well, I'm definitely going to check that out for sure. Yeah, I could at least stop my charge. Maybe they'd maybe they'd want me more if I, they weren't getting my money. <laughs> we'll have to see. Um, you said that the fiat world is broken in so many ways. Um, I would agree with that. Um, there's probably no end to the amount of conversations we can have and all the ways it was broken. There was a video clip that I saw sort of going viral. Jordan Peterson just had this big conference, art conference going out in London, I think it was uh, this last week, and. Um, the guy from trigonometry, Constantine, I think his name is, had like a pretty a, a talk that went pretty viral. And in the end, he said, um, he said, "Hey, and a message to all you conservatives: um, you're not going to be able to get the youth to vote for your conservative ways, trying to conserve a system that no longer works for them. Um, in a in a in a world where they can't afford to buy a house, they can't afford to buy a car. You know, the system is no longer working. How are they going to vote for you?" And I thought about that and. I was thinking about maybe doing a video on that, just that it's not a, I mean, I guess it sort of is a political thing, but the reason why it's not working for these people, they can't afford a house or a car is the fiat money system that's broken. You agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, we've seen the culmination of a pure fiat money system that's only really existed for, let's say 50 years, about 50 years. I mean, the US was on a gold standard and, some people think the U.S. went off the gold standard in uh, 1933 when Franklin Roosevelt confiscated people's gold from 
uh, their bank vaults. But really, the US went off the gold standard fully in 1971, I believe it was, when um, Nixon closed the gold window. So the gold standard still um, uh, acted as an anchor on the, the credit expansion that was happening. And once that anchor was completely detached, the credit expansion went crazy. So we've been living this experiment for about 50 years. And, and I think we're seeing like the full effects now. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it really has pervasive impact throughout society. It re- really increases people's time preference. Um, and in terms of the people who are growing up today and who are moving into the workforce, this is really the first generation in, I don't know, like 200 years, which can confidently say, we're not doing as well as our parents. We're actually doing worse than our parents. Uh, That's the first time that's really happened. Every generation prior to us could say confidently, I'm living a better lifestyle than my my parents and my grandparents. And that's a really um, sad statement, I I, I think, about... um, I hadn't really thought, what, of, I hadn't really thought about that, but what uh, it makes sense as you say that. So which ways do you think it's uh, a less quality of life? I mean, people used to, you know, have this expectation that when they left the house, they could get a job and afford a house. Right. That's, that's one basic thing. They, they, um, they could afford to have a family. There are a lot of people now who don't believe they can have a family. There are parts of parts of the country where people just don't think they it's it's a possibility for them anymore. Like you look at the major cities on the west coast or on the east coast uh, uh, too. Um, if you're living in one of those places, it's just if you're living a, a a regular middle class lifestyle, or even if you have a good job. Let's say you the two engineers at Google, for instance, who are earning good salaries. A lot of people like that, married couples who have two good salaries, can't afford to buy a home in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, now, there's some local factors involved as well. It's not just the fact that we've been dealing with 50 years of uncontrolled credit expansion and inflation. Local factors involved, such as bad policies that they don't let people build more uh, in the Bay Area. But as a general rule, it's a really strange thing that. Um, that people can no longer expect to have a lifestyle uh, better than their parents. Yeah. Given how much technology has improved over time uh, and, and given how much we've advanced in so many different aspects of society that this expectation shouldn't continue into the future, we need to sort of reflect on what what is going on, what is, what is broken in our current system that's making this uh, new reality come about. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, when you talk about that, there's other factors such as like building regulations and things like that. But a lot of the problems with building regulations and so forth is also uh, because of the broken fiat money system that we have as well. This, you know, overreaching government and misaligned incentives and things like that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Vijay Boyapati, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, senior engineer at Swan Bitcoin. We're talking about Bitcoin, we're talking about privacy, we're talking about the fiat currency, and we are going to talk about the bull case and a lot more. Don't go away, we'll be right back after a short break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. 
I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. Sitting down with Vijay Boyapati, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin and the senior engineer at Swan Bitcoin. Uh, great place to get Bitcoin if you're trying to get some, and you might want to after this conversation. Now, uh, Vijay, we were just talking about sort of like this fiat money system being broken. And like I said, we could sit here and talk about that all day. The one thing I was thinking, though, is you were saying how it's sort of changed people's time preference. And that one is a whole topic into itself. But I always think back to um, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, was quoted saying that uh, the best way to destroy capitalism is to debauch the currency uh, through inflation. And through inflation, you can arbitrarily steal. And then he said, until all relation is lost, until the best way to get rich is through gambling and theft. And today, it sort of seems like that could never be more true, right? I mean, everyone's just out for gambling and theft. It's like YOLO into some whatever options trade or crypto trade or whatever it may be, or like, theft, maybe not out, well, in the Bay Area, outright theft, <laughs> um, and maybe just a lot of grift and graft going on. 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. We lived through this period recently, which is sort of unprecedented in history, where we had 15 years of negative real interest rates. The Federal Reserve held uh, interest rates at zero and there was positive inflation during that period. So you're really being punished for saving. Uh, if you kept money in cash or dollar-denominated assets, you're generally punished for doing that. And so this creates this massive incentive to go out there and go further out on the risk curve and find assets that um, are almost chasing momentum, essentially, trying to find those assets that are going up just because there's this inflation and the money money that exists has to go and find safety um, outside of a regular bank account, for instance. Uh, so they ran this experiment for 15 years and we kind of saw the consequences inflation started. The, the inflation genie really got out of the bottle uh, during the pandemic and they're trying to put it back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. And so now we're actually back to what would be um, considered fairly normal historically where you have real interest rates, real positive interest rates. If you are a saver and you put your money in the bank, you will get a real return. Which Not is, in the bank, but in I, treasuries. In treasuries, yeah. absolutely right. Sorry, you, yeah. you, are, you are correct. If you put it in short-term uh, dollar-denominated uh, sec- bond securities, then you're you're going to get a real rate of return. And this is this has not been true for most of the last fifteen years. This has a beneficial effect in that it it encourages people to save and it changes the way they uh, plan for the future as well. Uh, unfortunately, I don't, I think this is going to be a very short-lived experiment. I think the Fed's going to go back to what their de- default um, behavior has been for the last uh, better part of the last two decades because the fiat system can't survive like this. It, it can't survive because fundamentally the U.S. government has this massive amount of debt that needs to be serviced. And with interest rates as high as they are, while that's good for society as a whole, the U.S. government can't continue to function servicing a debt that large, approaching 140% of GDP. So uh, the Federal Reserve being a part of the U.S. government will eventually cave in because they will see that the government can't function like this and the system as a whole can't function. So we're going to go back to negative real interest rates the reason the Fed is doing what it's doing right now is they need to establish some credibility. They said that they have an inflation of target of 2%. They could say, they could change their mind and say, actually, our inflation tar- we're changing our inflation target. Uh, we're going to make it 3% or 5%. But that's what banana republics do. And, and the Fed really has only one weapon, and that weapon is their credibility. That They're able to keep inflation under control because people believe that they will stick to their word. And when they say they're going to bring interest rates down to 2%, they will. Uh, I don't think they can, though. I don't think they can sustainably do that because they've let the inflation genie out of the bottle. um, And they have this huge constraint of if they really try and kill inflation, they make it so that the US debt is not serviceable anymore. And if they have to choose between these two things, uh, make it so the US government cannot service its debt anymore, which basically implodes the the government or letting the inflation genie out of the bottle, they're going to go with the former. That's what central banks have done for the, you know, the entire history of central banking. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. And they, and they have no choice. I mean, 
to your point, they, they lose credibility. I would say they've already lost credibility. Maybe most people, for some reason, haven't lost credibility with them. But, you know, they told us inflation was transitory, this and that. That, that obviously would prove to be wrong. Uh, but I think there's a couple of big problems that they have. One is that they can only try to basically limit consumer spending. So they can make you and I broke. But unfortunately, at this point now, the government, the fiscal spending is overpowering the consumer spending. So they can only crush us so much. They got to stop the government spending like a drunken sailor. And the U.S. fiscal uh, deficit was a trillion dollars last quarter. And now the numbers came out. They're projecting one point five trillion for the next two quarters. Yeah, right. that's that's the that's the problem. That exactly right. And the the US government and the population as a whole is is in a really difficult place for fixing this problem. We need fiscal responsibility, but we have such uh unprecedented polarization in the country. We can't agree to anything. So, it's very hard to come together and say things like, "Hey, can we make a compromise on your side and my side and get this sort of fiscal picture uh, under control, it's just not going to happen. And, and so I think what we can expect, given the re political reality we live in, is that the, the fiscal picture is going to continue to get worse. The government is going to rack up more and more deficits. At some point, there is a breaking point when the, the debt is actually not serviceable, when the amount of money that the US is bringing in through tax revenue is not enough to pay interest on the debt. That's when you get the moment of crisis, which is what do we do? Do we cut spending? Do we raise taxes? That's also politically very infeasible. Or do we go for the last option, which almost all countries go for in the end, which is the, the easiest option because it's the politically easiest option. Let's just inflate the money supply. Yeah. Let's reduce the debt by making it so that the amount of money, the denominator is much, much greater. And yeah. then, then servicing the debt's no problem because it's always money sloshing around. Yep. Uh, that's what's going to happen. And the question is, what is the breaking point for, for the US government? What percentage of GDP does it become uh, unserviceable? Um, well, they just got to get the GDP up. <laughs> Let's yeah. just have a couple yeah, years yeah. of uh, double, triple digit inflation. And that GDP number goes up, right? So, I mean, they can get that 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 number down. I, I mean, that that's that's the most likely scenario. This financial repression playbook, you know, that they ran in the '40s, uh, that Israel ran in the '80s. The IMF put out a white paper in 2015 called "Liquidation of Government Debt," which is basically spelling that out. If the debt to GDP is uh, an equation, if we can't get the debt down, let's just get the GDP up. And yep. so it's like, hey, we're selling iPhones for a thousand bucks. If we sell ten of them, that's ten thousand. But if we take the inflation pushes the price to two thousand, and we still sell ten iPhones, now it's two thousand, right? It's, it's it's a magic trick. And now, to I think maybe the last piece that I want to get into is you have this maybe you said contrarian take as to this Bitcoin bear, uh, bull market. Um, but I'll, I'll say this: I got to take a quick break. But um, you know, can the Fed uh, admit defeat and change the target? It's going to be very difficult for them to do that and maintain credibility. Unless we have a war, Janet Yellen says we can afford to fight two wars at the same time. And so maybe that could be the scapegoat. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Vijay Boyapati, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin and a senior engineer at Swan Bitcoin. We'll be back with more in a minute after a very short break. Don't go away. Be right back. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. If you just tuned in, you're listening to The Mark Ma Show. Sitting down with Vijay Boyapati, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin and the senior engineer over at Swan Bitcoin. And we were kind of get, going through, um, I don't know what we call it, the unwinnable situation that the U.S. is in. And not just the U.S., every, every government, every central bank is sort of in this same scenario. And I kind of threw out at the end, um, you know, if the Fed... Fed doesn't want to lose credibility. They're trying to regain credibility by getting back to that 2% target unless they can come up with some good reason, scapegoat, as to why they can't do that, potentially like multiple wars. Um, You kind of shook your head in disgust when I said that. Um, So if you want to address that, you can. But then you had said that you think that maybe this bull market in Bitcoin has already started, which might be controversial for some who think that there's this massive macro picture that's going to crash everything down. So maybe explain that to me. Yeah, I, you know, one thing, this prior bull market was really shortened or curtailed, I think. You know, people have put out a lot of reasons, but I think the real, the main reason was that the Fed ended this unprecedented period of 15 years of zero interest rates. And I, I think um, when there are positive real interest rates in the market, that's generally bad for competing monetary goods. And the, the classic example of this is gold. You go back to uh, the 1970s when gold was um, going through this decade-long bull market and parabolic moving gold 
very similar to one of Bitcoin's uh, bull cycles. The graphs actually look very similar. These hype cycles are almost identical. Then Paul Volcker, the central banker at the time, really uh, was determined to get inflation under control and, and set interest rates close to 20%, I believe, uh, and, and had very real um, high positive real interest rates. So you would earn money, you'd earn real value by keeping money in the bank. That's generally uh, a, a period of time which is bad for competing monetary goods. And it was really bad for gold. It was bad for gold for two decades. So I think the same thing happened with Bitcoin at the end of the bull market. Um, how long can the Fed go along with this? I think that's 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 an open question. But I think about to that point real quick, though. So if you look at like Bitcoin's history, which isn't super long, so it's not like, you know, super conclusive, I guess. But if you look at like the halving market data, for example, we can see that on every halving, um, the peak of Bitcoin is 18 months after the halving. So, so far, that's been true. And I, you know, going into this this last event um, after the halving, knowing that it's 18 months, but we'd all thought maybe the price of Bitcoin would be, you know, 150,000 or wherever it was going to top out, right? And, you know, I have, I have Michael Saylor in the back of my ear going, oh, all your cycles are broken. And you see the big institutional adoption coming in. And so maybe it would be higher. And so then as we get to this November uh, date, this 18 months after the halving cycle, I remember thinking, this can't be it. No, this, this cycle is going to be broken at this point because the price should be so much higher. And right on cue, right at 18 months after the halving cycle is when the price dropped. Um, and yes, it was with the Fed's announcement that they were going to start uh, you know, raising rates. Now, they didn't actually raise rates until they announced it in November. They didn't actually raise them, I think, until January after. Uh, but just the announcement was nothing to do with the market. But anyway... Um, is that just coincidence? Do you think that it just happened to be right at the eighteen-month mark, or do you, you know, was it, or is it more of the having cycle? Yeah, I, you know, I had the conversation about this with Stefan Levera on his podcast as well. I think there are two factors at play. There's the internal Bitcoin market dynamic, and I actually believe the halving is a real driver of price movement. I think the halving will be again uh, because. The market in in the bear market has to find a plateau where there's an equilibrium between supply and demand, uh, and we we have we've had that equilibrium essentially for the last several months. But then the halving comes along, and it really is this huge supply shock where the, the supply is halved. So the amount of fiat money that needs to come into the Bitcoin market to maintain the current price is something like I don't know forty million dollars a day. And then suddenly you only need half of that, but the demand, the, the people who are buying Bitcoin, that demand doesn't halve. It's still that same level. And that, that supply shock makes demand above supply and it starts moving the price up and then it starts feeding on itself and then you get the madness of crowds phenomena. So I think there's that internal market dynamic, but I think Bitcoin now is big enough that it's a macro asset and it is affected by macro factors like interest rates. So I think both of those things are at play. I would probably say the 180 days is a coincidence. I, I, my strong belief is that it was really interest rate led. I think the Fed hurt all, all risk assets, all interest rate sensitive assets. And I think Bitcoin is an interest rate sensitive asset. But Bitcoin also has this internal market dynamic, which you're talking about, which is the four year halving cycle. And I think that's still very powerful. And I think it's going to trigger the next 
bull market. But for me, it's not just the fact that we're approaching the halving, it's just looking at the price action of Bitcoin. That price action tells a story and it's telling a story that bad news is not hurting Bitcoin. Yeah. In a bear market, good news does not help. Uh, in a bull market, bad news does not hurt. Uh, and so when you see that price action, you know we're entering a bull market. And there's been you know plenty of news that would normally knock Bitcoin down, but the price keeps going up higher and higher and higher. Then there's other factors as well, well that could um, be propelling it, um, including the potential approval of an ETF, um, which I think will be, be a good market catalyst. But uh, it's undeniable. You look at the price action of Bitcoin right now, it's, it looks like it's ready for a big bull run. Yeah. Uh, one chart that I've been amazed by, you, you mentioned real rates earlier, and you can look at charts with inverted real rates and the, it's like lockstep with gold. I mean, since the last couple of decades, gold and real rates have just moved almost in lockstep. And now there's this massive divergent. So there's something going on there that tells us something, right? And then you look at um, other factors like this narrative shift, if you will. Larry Fink, the you know, largest asset manager in the world from BlackRock, came out and said, people are running to Bitcoin for safety. Like to hear him come out and say that. And and so I think that's why gold is diverging, right? I think people are starting to realize, and maybe not in the United States, but the rest of the world is like, we don't want U.S. Treasuries. So we can see central banks are net sellers of treasuries and net buyers of gold. And so it's causing this divergence. Um, but I think it's also Bitcoin and gold sort of moving in that way. Um, just to kind of go back. So back to the having cycle, if the, if the Fed would have announced they were going to raise rates a month later, then this whole 18 month after the halving would have been broken. That would that that'd be your that have been your base case. <laughs> yeah, I honestly believe if the Fed had maintained zero interest rates, say a year longer, we would have probably hit a hundred thousand. That's that's my belief. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So, do you think uh, it it did maintain its its uh, having cycle uh, kind of structure? Do you think we're back into this having cycle structure again now? Like, uh, so now I we're about a year and a half before the or. What are we I think so. And it's really remarkable. You look at these um, price charts for each cycle and you overlay them and they're, they're eerily similar yeah. uh, in terms of timing from halving, just as you, you use the halving as the anchor point. Uh, and Satoshi did something incredible, like choosing this this system where we had uh, a four-year halving. You could almost imagine that this four-year halving, if it had been some other number, it might not have had the same impact. It, it, it's almost like four years is enough for the pain to be forgotten of the previous cycle yeah. and the enthusiasm to rebuild. You need, it's, it, it's, he almost tapped into some human psychology here to know what the ideal time was for creating these supply shocks. If they had been every six months or so, I think it, it wouldn't have had the same impact as it does. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't really think about it like that. But, you know, typically I, I started my career in real estate investing. And typically the old adage was, you know, don't buy a home unless you plan to hold it for at least five years. So you have sort of like these five year, you know, you have these uh, longer, maybe eight year business cycles. And so to your point, they're sort of long enough. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But from a psychological standpoint, uh, pretty interesting. I want to come back and uh, we're going to take a very quick break. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Ma Show, talking with Vijay Boyapati. Um, I want to talk about when we come back, um, maybe this bullish case for Bitcoin. So we talked about sort of this U.S. demand, but I want to talk about, do you really think this ETF is a big enough, big enough catalyst or do we need something bigger from the rest of the world? So I'm going to ask you those questions when we come back. We'll talk about that um, after a very short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. Sitting down with Vijay Boyapati, the author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin and a senior engineer over at Swan Bitcoin. And, you know, Vijay, we were talking about sort of this uh, this bullish case for Bitcoin, sort of looking at price action and having cycles and things like that. Um, I know a lot of people are putting a lot of weight onto this ETF getting approved. Um, there's some controversy there from like real Bitcoiners. Um, I'm a little fearful of potentially this sort of shakedown or this event that seems to be happening where you have like Elizabeth Warren going on this rampage, specifically going on what she's calling non-custodial wallets, brand new technological innovation. She's calling it of non-custodial wallets. And uh, in the UK, they just passed a bill um, that they could um, seize or freeze your crypto accounts without due process. And so the only way they could do that is, again, if you had your Bitcoin on a custodial exchange, right? So it seems like there's uh, this attack vector coming from both Elizabeth Warren and from the UK on custodying your own Bitcoin. And at the same time, you have this ETF narrative. Um, and so it's like, hey, we could buy it on an ETF or maybe keep it in Coinbase, but you can't hold it yourself. So there's that. And then uh, I'm, I want to kind of frame this up even more where, you know, we just had the 15th anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper and, and Satoshi in the white paper talked about 
that we no longer uh, require trust. He used the word trust 14 times in the white paper. I think it's like the third most cited word. Uh, and we don't need to use these trusted third parties, these trusted intermediaries, right? And so it seems like Bitcoin is made for enemies, or we, we might say for adversary, right? So like, if I'm being sanctioned by the Taliban or by North Korea, we can go peer to peer. And so it almost needs this adversarial opponent to really have value, right? So like in America, like the dollar works pretty good. Most people don't understand why we need new money. But if you go to Lebanon or whatever, Peru or Argentina, they already know why they need new money, right? So it almost seems like we need this adversarial lens more for the bull case. So I don't know, I'm curious your take on that. That's a that's a really interesting question. You know, the the one time I felt worried about Bitcoin was during the the block size wars, uh, when Bitcoin did go through this very adversarial struggle, where the most powerful companies and powerful miners and some of the biggest holders tried to change Bitcoin into something that would be, I think, much less beneficial to the world. They were trying to change it into essentially a piece of software rather than um, this immutable, unchangeable institution that allows people to transfer value uh, with complete confidence that it, it, they can't be censored. They were, they were trying to change it essentially into what Ethereum is today. It's just kind of this plaything for engineers who can just tinker with the interest rate, or sorry, tinker with the money supply and change it at will and roll back transactions if they, yeah. if they want to. Um, when Bitcoin got through that, I... Um, my confidence grew to the point where I don't worry about Bitcoin anymore. I don't worry that you could have like a fairly large concentration of ownership in an ETF, for instance, because what what I think would happen is if they tried to use that to control the network in any way, the people who really believe in Bitcoin's principles and its true value to the world would just say, we don't want to be part of this system anymore. We will continue um, running the original Bitcoin that's unchangeable. And you can go off and do your own thing if you want to change the, the money supply and you want to add inflation to Bitcoin. You go and do that. And I think what what I, I believe I discovered during the block size wars is that value will accrue to that immutable, unchangeable institution, because that's something that's truly unique in the world. And value follows that. Value looks for savings, looks for um, a vehicle that cannot be manipulated or changed. It, it, it naturally flows into uh, vehicles like that. Um, so And scarce assets. Into scarce assets, exactly. So I, I, I think it might be used as an attack vector in, in the future, but I'm much less worried about it than I, I would have been um, if the block size war hadn't happened. Because really that was, I, I think, the peak threat for Bitcoin because the most powerful companies in the space really banded together to try and change Bitcoin and they were not able to. Uh, and I think that was a testament to Bitcoin's resilience uh, and this underlying belief and philosophy in the ecosystem that it's something that should not be changed. And of course, the market incentives and the economics of it, people want that. Um, it, and it was really, um, it was a real revelation to see that the people who were trying to change Bitcoin, despite all the, the reasons that they gave, ultimately the economics were too powerful for them. They decided that they wanted to stay with the system that was unchangeable. And that's where they put their capital, despite saying that their system was better. Mm. Uh, so yeah. it, Bitcoin sort of reveals the truth of, of what real money is just 
on its own. Yeah. I did this whole segment earlier talking about the the green curtain crumbling as a green uh, movement from EVs and renewables and all this. And so um, after the great financial crash, there was no ESG funds that were open. Um, then BlackRock and State Street started opening up these ESG funds. They were projecting, they had 20 trillion under, under management. They were projecting 50 trillion by 2025. And now all the funds are crumbling. Uh, BlackRock shut most of them down. And it's because they're all losing money. So they're not making sense. And so as you were talking about that, I was thinking about it where if the value accrues to the scarce asset, if the value accrues to what can't be changed, the the Wall Street, the institutions can try to co-opt it, but they just end up with an Ethereum. But if the value accrues to the non-changeable chain, then all that money is going to want to come back. If they change it, then they didn't care about the attributes. What they cared about was the alpha they could make. But I guess the question I was asking more was about, do you think like this this uh, chasing money narrative, this ETF narrative is enough to be the bull case. Meaning like, so what, BlackRock's going to send the signal and every financial advisor in the United States is going to sit down with their client and go, hey, now you can invest into this ETF through your stock account, right? But they're going to look at two years of data and go, dang, I would have lost money if I held this for a couple of years. So maybe it's not the strongest compelling case. If I'm only buying it for the money, well, the last two years of data doesn't really look that good, right? We saw like uh, SpaceX had to liquidate a huge position at a loss, right, for example. And maybe what I was saying is the bull case might be as we have more need for it, as we see the EU crack down on pushing, they just announced they're moving to the next stage of their CBDC, for example. So as we get these CBDCs, as we get these digital IDs put into place, and we we have to adopt it, I guess that's what I was asking, something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think what the ETF does is it really expands the liquidity channel into Bitcoin. And ultimately, Bitcoin's price level is determined by how much liquidity goes into Bitcoin. I think what you're saying is correct. Um, there, there will be these other events that will trigger people's desire for Bitcoin. But the fact that the liquidity channel will increase substantially, I think, will also mean that those flow of funds can be much larger than they are now. So it'll be much, much easier for people to invest say their IRA or their 401k money into Bitcoin when they haven't when they have access to an ETF. Um, it's still not particularly easy to do that. So I think the flow of funds will actually be fairly substantial with an ETF approval. And I think it will have a meaningful impact on the price. But I don't think that's alone the driver. I think it's going to be a, a combination of multiple factors that it'll be the the ETF approval and the increasing liquidity channel, it's going to be the halving. And I think it's going to also be the Fed pivoting at some point in the next couple of years or maybe even in the next year when when they realize that this, the fiat system as a whole cannot survive with positive real interest rates. And when that happens, I think we've, we've started to see the cracks emerge in the economy. So, certainly in some parts of the economy, which are in a deep depression right now, the real estate market is in probably the worst depression it's been in the last century. Um, it, like the, the housing market is completely frozen. Uh, the, the, num- the number of transactions that, that are happening is the lowest level in a very, very long time. Uh, so we, we have depression in some parts of the economy, but some parts of the economy are still kind of booming because of all yeah. the inflation that came out in 2020. So the service sector... But I think as the cracks continue to spread to other parts of the economy, the Fed is going to be forced to pivot. So we have a confluence, I think, for what will be a huge bull market. We have the halving. We'll have an ETF approval. I'm fairly confident that that's going to happen sometime in by January. And we're going to have the Fed pivoting. I think that's going to really be uh, 
three key drivers for Bitcoin's bull market this cycle. Man, I love it. Now, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Mark Ma Show. I've been sitting down with Vijay Boyapati. He's the author of the book, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, and a senior engineer over at Swan Bitcoin. But that's what we got. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, let me know. Hit me up on social media at one Mark Moss and let me know what you think. Leave a comment if you're listening on the podcast, a review. I'd really appreciate it. And that's what I got. Thanks so much for listening. When you drive a vehicle so reliable, it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty. You stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen wolf Bededa, And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.